This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read from God's Word this evening in two places. First in Genesis chapter 3, and then in Romans chapter 5. Genesis 3, and then Romans 5. Genesis 3, we read verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam his, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee, that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Read that far, and now we turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, when we begin reading at verse 12. Romans five twelve. Wherefore, as by one man... That's Adam. Sin entered into the world, 
and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the free gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. We read that far in God's holy word. On the basis of those portions of Holy Scripture, as well as on the basis of all of God's Word, we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism. We consider now Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means, but God created man good. And after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Whence or from where then proceeds this depravity of human nature? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, Hence, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed, we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we began recently a new a new series of sermons in the doctrines as explained by the Heidelberg Catechism. We have seen in the first Lord's Day that the Heidelberg Catechism is about the comfort of the believer. But having seen that theme as comfort, we delved immediately into Lord's Day 2, which showed us our misery, how great my sins and miseries are. We did that because in order to understand our comfort, we must first understand 
our misery. We must see our misery so that we might see our only comfort in life and in death, that is to belong to Jesus Christ. We saw last week that our misery is sin itself. We have a depravity, even a total depravity. We not only have sin, but we are sinners. And even in the regenerate condition we saw last time, we have a sinful nature. And that sinful nature, that old man, in a proper sense, is still totally depraved because it pervades all our parts. Our mind, our will, our feelings. Still, I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And we saw that though the law comes, and the law has ten commandments, and the heart of those commandments is love, the law exposes to us again and again that our heart still hates. And is prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. We considered that last week. Today, the Lord's Day, Lord's Day 3, takes us on a journey to explore a related but a different question. Since it is true that I am, present tense, yet depraved, totally depraved, how, do I, how did I get this way is the main question. How has all men received this depraved nature? What is the origin? What is the source? That's the question. Or let us frame the question this way, which leads us to the main application of today's sermon. Who's to blame? Whose fault is it that I have this depravity? That's not just a theological question, though it is, but it is a soul-searching question that reveals a lot about your soul. It is for your examination before you partake of the Lord's Supper. Who's to blame? This is what the depraved heart does. It symbolized children by that index finger. That index finger that is pointed outward while, as you know, the three fingers are pointed back at you. This is the response of the depraved nature to the question, what's the source? Who's to blame? Whose fault is it? It's everyone else. It's someone else. As siblings in the home, you do that, don't you? When a fight breaks out, when something wrong has been done, he did it. Oh, she did it. They, they started it first. And so on and so forth. He's more at fault than I am. Or, as husbands and wives, when there's conflict in the marriage, a silent seething takes place. A mulling over in the mind of how the problem really was my spouse. 
Or at least he, she is more to blame. There goes the finger, even though it's not pointed literally, physically at times. Or where, there, where there's conflict between parents and children, they're to blame. It's their fault. And there's a deflection. The blame game happens in our families and in our churches. They need to repent for their behavior. No, they need to repent for their false doctrine. They need to apologize. No, they need to say sorry. How terrible their schism is. How wicked their error was. Our depravity is revealed by the activity of blaming in order to justify ourselves. I remind you, beloved, of what took place immediately after the fall. Very familiar to you, but we need to go back to the fall. We read that in Genesis 3. God said to Adam, Has thou eaten? Adam, you, thou, Adam, you, you, have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And man said, the woman, there's the finger, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. There's depravity, beloved. There's your depravity. There is your misery and my misery. Total depravity hates God and the neighbor. And one of the first demonstrations of that hatred of God and the neighbor is this. That instead of acknowledging the hatred that we have in our hearts, we hate God and the neighbor by blaming God and the neighbor for the very sin that we have. Today the Lord brings good reformed people or think those who think they're good reformed people who know Reformed doctrine intellectually to consider Reformed doctrine experientially. From whence comest thou thy depravity, the catechism asked, who is to blame? And the answer summed up properly so. Adam. Myself. And that is how we must approach the Lord's table. Consider Lord's Day 3 under the theme, the source of my misery. First, not God. Adam. Secondly, not Adam only. But myself. And third, we consider our salvation so that in Christ we are not dead. As the catechism instructs us. The first question of Lord's Day 3 is startling. The first question of Lord's Day 3 is revealing. As the Heidelberg Catechism leads us to consider the question of the source of our depravity, or who's to blame, whose fault is it? The question really asks this, is God to blame? Is God at fault? 
That's the question of the Lord's day. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? What a shocking question. What a terrible question we can say. We should not even ask it. To ask the question is to imply that God is not good. It is to hint that perhaps evil did come from the holy God himself. It is to suggest a blasphemous idea that God is the problem of evil or sin. But here is why the catechism asks this very question. Because the catechism, as you can see, takes us on an experiential approach through this, these doctrines. And an experiential approach means this. It means that it takes us through these doctrines as we human beings would approach these doctrines according to our human thinking. And this is the very question that erupts from a depraved human heart. Is God to blame? It's not just a question, it's an accusation. For as you noticed, what Adam said when God asked him, Has thou eaten of the tree? He didn't just blame his wife. The first response of the depraved human heart after the fall, when confronted with his sin, was the woman that thou gavest to be with me. And that is the experience of the depraved human heart, which the catechism reveals by this very question. Is God to blame? And you say, perhaps I don't do that. You have some examination to do before you partake of the Lord's Supper this week then. Because more often than you think you do, you will realize in humble self-examination how frequently in our worry, as we mentioned this morning, in our anger, in our frustration with God's will, we actually blame not only one another, but the sovereign God. When the catechism asks this question, it does so to expose the depravity of our human heart who blames the righteous God. Is that why I am totally depraved? Is sin because of God? By no means, the catechism answers. And to explain this answer, the catechism brings us back to Genesis 1. We read Genesis 3, but it brings us back to Genesis 1 and God's creation of the universe in six literal 24-hour days. Remember, the catechism says on the basis of God's word, remember how God created the heavens and the earth, and how he created mankind at the center of these heavens and this earth. He created man very good. He didn't make man evil. He's not the source of wickedness and sin. But he made man very good. Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. The quality, in general, of everything was very good. But now specifically, when God said very good, he was especially referring to man who he had created morally or ethically good. We delve deeper into this goodness with which God had created man 
He created man in his own image. But now as we delve deeper, don't forget the main point. The main point that the catechism is explaining is this. God is not the source. He is not to blame for our total depravity. For he created man in his own image. When we think about God's image, we must understand God's image clearly. God's image is the creaturely likeness of God. The creaturely likeness of God. When God created man, Adam, and then Eve, He created man in His own image. It is good for clarity's sake to distinguish between two aspects of God's image. There is image of God in the formal sense and the image of God in the material sense. The formal sense means that God created man with a capacity to bear this image. He created man with a rational, moral, and spiritual nature. With a capacity to bear that image. By rational... I mean that God created man with the ability to think, to use logic, to use reason, with a far greater ability of thinking than all the animals. He created man moral, a moral being. I mean by that, that he created Adam with a conscience so that he could sense right and wrong far greater than the animals could. And third, he created man a spiritual being. That means he created man with a soul. Not just a physical aspect to him, but with a spiritual aspect to him. As a rational, moral, spiritual being, man was created in distinction from the animals. That's the idea of the capacity to bear the image of God. In the first sense. Secondly, the catechism, when it speaks of the image of God, is not referring to God's creation of man merely with a capacity to bear the image, but especially with the essence of God's image. And the essence of God's image is this, what you should know well, with true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. True knowledge, righteousness, and holiness is what the catechism explains as the image of God. In righteousness and holiness, we read that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him. You can think of it this way. God did not create Adam merely as a rational person with the ability to think superior to the animals, but he created Adam filled in his rational nature with true knowledge, a true knowledge that could think upon truths about God and not only know about God, but Adam with his true knowledge could have a relationship with God. And he did. He knew God, not just about him, But he had a relational knowledge, a personal knowledge with God. Secondly, Adam not only had 
a moral nature to sense right and wrong. But God filled this moral nature with righteousness so that he could know right and wrong and do that which was right always in obedience to God, his maker. And third, God did not create Adam simply with a spiritual nature, but he filled that spiritual soul with holiness. And as Adam, with his whole heart, was dedicated to God, to the worship of his name, and separated from sin. Marvel at that. Stand in awe of the perfect God who without any evil created man good, very good, in his own image, after his likeness, with true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. God, therefore, the catechism is explaining, is not the source of our depravity. He is not to blame. God created man good, but man, man fell. Adam fell. Adam is the source of our depravity. Whence proceeds this depravity of human nature? The catechism answers from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. It's especially Adam in his fall in paradise. We read that history. God told Adam that of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Live with me, God said. With that true knowledge, righteousness and holiness. Live in covenant fellowship with me. Obey. Rule your house to obey, to live, to know me, to do rightly, to be dedicated to me with the goodness that I have given you and created you with. And here's what Adam did instead. He let the woman do the leading. The woman listening to the poisonous words of the devil swallowed his lies before she swallowed the fruit. Poison wasn't in the fruit. And in that way, she gave to her husband, and he did eat also. And Adam fell. When Adam sinned, he died. He died. He didn't keel over at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he spiritually died. Yes, the effects of death immediately came upon his body, bringing him and Eve to the grave. But the point is that he immediately died spiritually. God did not lie when he said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. How did he die? Well, we said he spiritually died, but a further explanation is this. 
true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, which he had, was lost. True knowledge, righteousness, and holiness was removed, is taken away from him completely. He died. Spiritually. But as I said, it wasn't because of the fruit itself. It wasn't that the poison from the fruit infected his soul. But he died because God judged him with death. When he disobeyed God, the judgment of God from heaven was this. Adam, guilty. That was the verdict. And the sentence, Adam, worthy of death. And at God's word, he died. He lost the image of God, not only, but he took on spiritual darkness. He took on the image of Satan himself. He had joined Satan's side. And the consequence was that he became darkness like Satan. Holy, incapable, as the catechism says, of doing any good and inclined to all evil. So depraved, as we started out the sermon, so depraved that having taken on this depravity because of his own sin, he dared to blame God for his fall. Whose fault was it? Not God. But man's, Adam's in particular. Adam's sin was the most tragic event in all of history. The most tragic event in all of history was not Holocaust. It was not some plague. It was not a world war. It's not a church controversy. But what caused all of this was sin. Adam's fall. But in pointing to Adam, as we properly do so tonight, we're not saying that as we point to Adam and say he is the root of this depravity, that is not therefore our fault. But rather when we say Adam is at fault, we're saying at the same time, that just as much as it was Adam's fault, it's our own. Depravity is due to me, for I am in Adam. Adam's not more at fault. We might like to think that. I am as much at fault as Adam. 6,000 years ago, 
When God the judge looked down from heaven and judged Adam guilty. And then the sentence, worthy of death. When God spoke that about Adam, he was speaking that about us in Adam. And our modern, our individualistic minds may rigorously dispute that. We hate that idea by nature. We might want to shout arguments against this judgment of God. It's not fair. But all we do by doing so is to show that same depravity of Adam. Blaming God for injustice in order to admit or refuse to admit fault. There are two ways that the Bible says Adam's sin is my sin and your sin. Two ways. First, legally. Legally, it's ours. Adam's guilt is imputed to us. You've heard that word before, imputed. And often when you hear the word imputed or imputation, you think upon Jesus Christ. And the imputation of Christ's righteousness, legally judged as yours. That's the gospel. It's hinted at, even as we speak. But imputation also happens in Adam. For Christ was pictured by Adam, and Adam first was declared guilty, unrighteous, not righteous, and we with him. Romans 5 that we read, verse 12, speaks of that. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. If you look at that verse, Romans 5, verse 12, the key to understanding this verse and then the rest of the verses that follow, Romans 5, 12, is the tense of the verbs. The tense of the verbs in the original is an aorist tense, which is simply means that it's a tense that speaks of a one-time action, often a past action, a snapshot of an action in the garden in paradise. Think of the verbs that way, entered, past, and sinned, verse 12. These events entered, passed, and sin, Paul is saying, took place 6,000 years ago and snapshot actions of the past. And the first two verbs, we can understand, sin entered into the world. That's Adam. Adam sinned, so sin entered into the world. Took place 6,000 years ago in the past. And passed, death passed upon all men. So death entered the world. Right when Adam sinned. We can understand that. But then the explanation in the last phrase is the most striking. Why did death pass upon all men? For that all have sinned. The same tense. Snapshot action taken in the past in the garden. When Adam sinned, God is saying, all sinned. When you read in Genesis 3, the record of that, which took place 6,000 years ago, Adam sinned, 
all sinned. All are guilty for that sin. That's Paul's point. How could I? You might ask. I didn't exist. And Paul's answer would be, and God's answer is, legally so. For Adam represented you as your head. And when he sinned, all mankind was declared guilty for his sin. No, you didn't choose Adam to be your representative. Just like you didn't vote, many of you, for President Biden. And yet he is the head, the representative of this country. And when President Biden, in his official capacity, makes a decision for this country, we don't merely say President Biden did it, though he did it. But properly speaking, in his official capacity, when he makes a decision, we say America has done so. So that, for illustrating purposes, when if President Biden were to declare war on China, we must say, not just one individual did, but America has declared war on China in a far, far more significant sense, Adam was our head, our representative. And in the Garden of Eden 6,000 years ago, he declared war upon God. And when he did so as an individual, he did so as our head, our representative. So that we, properly speaking, in Adam, are guilty of declaring war on God. That is what theologians call original guilt. That's the first way that we are at fault. Secondly, not only is guilt imputed legally to us. But secondly, the corruption, the corruption of Adam, the dead sinful nature, like a disease, has been passed down from generation to generation all the way to us. Not just legally, but now innately, Adam, you see, was not just a legal head, but Adam was a father, a natural head. Contrary to evolutionary theory, Scripture shows us that Adam was the first man. It wasn't a bunch of apes that evolved into men and women millions and billions of years ago. But God created the first man as the head not only legally as a representative head, but a natural head as well. So that he would be the father of all. And when that sentence of death came upon Adam, so that he spiritually died and to knowledge 
righteousness and holiness was emptied from him, and instead there was replaced within his nature the very darkness and image of Satan himself. That was passed on to Cain, to Abel, to Seth, and on down the line, every human being is ineffective except for Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 12 speaks of that death as by one man sin entered into the world and death, not just physical, a spiritual death by sin, so death passed upon all men. One of the phrases which you need to know from the canons of Dort, which expresses this idea of original corruption, is in the canons of Dort, heads 3 and 4, article 2, the propagation of a vicious nature. Memorize that. Don't ever forget that. There is a propagation of a vicious nature. Canons put it. Hence all the posterity of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption, this spiritual deadness from their original parent, not by imitation, as the parent, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature. You're not sinful. You don't have a totally depraved nature because you followed a bad example. Though certainly it is the case that we have many bad examples that aggravate the problem. But the root cause is the propagation of a vicious nature and that vicious nature you and I must say is mine. Hence, the Catechism quotes Psalm 51, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Like father, like son, it is said. Like father, like son. And yes, even on Mother's Day we say, like mother, like daughter, parents pass on to their children not only the physical traits of a shapely nose, of a Dutch blood, of a certain hair color or height, of a strong will, of a shy personality, or an outgoing demeanor. But there's one thing that every parent, yes, both father and mother, pass down to their child whether he or she likes it or not, or is aware of it or not. That is total depravity. Parents, here's one evidence you have that, you, that proves you, you still have a totally depraved nature. Here's one evidence. That's what you give. That's what you pass down to your children. Parents, we don't pass down to our children any bit of God's image. We don't pass down to our children regeneration, even though we might be regenerated. 
We pass down to our children a stony heart, wholly incapable of doing any good, inclined to all evil. Next time you lose your, next time you lose your temper with your children, remember this. You've passed down their total depravity, your total depravity. Two Protestant Reformed believers, two regenerated Protestant Reformed believers, pass down to their children a nature who might be outwardly Protestant Reformed. But without God's grace, will become, no, will be and continue to be a hypocrite who will act like a Protestant Reformed believer outwardly in the church, but will inwardly hate Christ and the doctrines of grace. That's original corruption. A totally depraved nature. Mine. My fault. Not just Adam. Me, myself, I. This is not high theology. It should come down to your experience today. Stop blaming God. Stop blaming one another. Whose fault is this debacle? Each side wants to blame others in order to defend self. Now I am not saying, I am not saying that there is no blame. I am not saying that there is no guilt and sin that's committed by other people around you, even against you. I am not saying that. They have sinful natures. We all do. The point is, how often have we found ourselves justifying ourselves by blaming others, accusing others in order to counter the accusations that come our way? We're only showing the depravity of Adam in our own selves when we engage in this blaming for self-justification. I hear it too often. I hear it come forth my own lips. That is not how we approach the Lord's table. It may not be. His guilt, Adam's guilt, is mine. His totally depraved nature has been passed down to become mine. I am in desperate need. And my blaming to, blaming to excuse others proves my desperate need still, still, for the mercy of Jesus Christ and His broken body and shed blood for me 
I who need it most. For I am to blame. To those who approach the Lord's table next Sunday, believing this truth of God's word, to you the gospel comes and will be displayed in all its beauty. Although you have original guilt and original corruption in Adam, you are also in Christ. The second Adam, who imputes his righteousness to you and who passes down to you and into you his life. There is a second Adam, you see. Romans 5.14 the last part speaks of Adam as a figure or a type of Jesus Christ, who is a figure of him that was to come. Adam pictured Jesus in two ways. Adam was a representative head, and Adam was a natural head. As a representative head, Adam's guilt is judged as your guilt and my guilt. But it reflected Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a representative head as well. And he who had no guilt of himself obeyed God's commandments perfectly in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness all his life and in our human flesh. And his perfect righteousness is judged as ours, covering over the guilt that we have in Adam and all the sins that we make ourselves guilty of. All those whom he has chosen in Jesus Christ, God judges as righteous. That's verse 18. For as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, that's Jesus, the free gift came upon all men unto justification. But there's more. Adam not only pictured Jesus Christ as a representative head, but also as a natural head. That is, like a father, Adam passed down to us, generation to generation, his corruption, the totally depraved nature that we feel ourselves have, that we pass on to our children, that we mourn over today and in this week. But the gospel is this, so great is Jesus our Savior, that he not only represented us, but he is the one who has risen again from the dead. And like a father, he passes down to us from heaven above and by his spirit. He passes to us and to our hearts his own nature. So that we regain by his grace 
righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. We get his life. That's why the catechism uses that word accept at the last, in the last question and answer. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are. Except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So great is our Savior that having imputed unto us His righteousness, He also infuses into us His Spirit. To create within us a new heart, a new man. He regenerates us. Don't ever deny that. So that in Christ, we are alive. And you ask, well, are we totally depraved or not? Yes. According to our old nature, we are. That old nature which pervades all our parts. And according to our new man, regenerated by Jesus Christ, we are not. We're perfect. And this new man also pervades all our parts. A mystery, yes, but part of the gospel. And so much so does that new man pervade that according to the new man, we live. He reigns. But I close with this. Regenerated by the new man, or by the, by the spirit, so that we have a new man. We don't now go around boasting. But all the works we've done according to this new man. That regenerated new man does not constantly go around talking about how good he is and blaming others. On the contrary. The regenerated new man does this what the old man cannot do what we see Adam refusing to do that regenerated new man is empowered to withdraw that finger that wants to point at everyone else and bring it back to self, to the sinful nature I still have. I'm still, I'm still the sinner. The new man says, according to my old, I'm still the sinner in desperate need of the broken body 
in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. And you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.